keep it off. And then we're going to get, okay, we're live. We are live now. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest, author. His name is Ray McGinnis. He's publishing a book on September 11th, 2021. Very important uh, marker. Two decades since September 11th, uh, 2001. The title of his book is Unanswered Questions. What the September 11th families asked and the 9-11 commission ignored. And he has uh, forward by very uh, significant people um, who have studied 9-11 or other kind of uh, parapolitical topics such as James W. Douglas, Paul Craig Roberts, David Ray Griffin, Graham McQueen, and Lisa Peace, who I interviewed about her book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. So you can listen to that on William Ramsey Investigates. But uh, there are very important questions unanswered, just like the title says, about the commission. And uh, I'm very delighted that Mr. McGinnis wrote this book, and I enjoyed really delighted in reading it. So, Ray McGinnis, are you there? I'm, I'm here. It's great to speak with you, William. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks for agreeing. Congratulations on the book, and thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your background, can you talk about your background and what led you to write this book, Unanswered Questions? Okay. Well, uh my background, I mean, I have uh, initially I was, uh, you know, involved in Christian education. I was national staff for youth and young adult ministries with the United Church of Canada. I have an undergraduate degree in uh, religious studies and also studied uh, English literature and political science and history at University of Toronto. And, uh, you know, then I was involved at a retreat center in the Okanagan Valley in, in rural British Columbia, Canada for four years. And, uh, and I made a, a switch out of that uh, into teaching journal writing, uh, memoir, poetry, uh, working with grief and, and loss groups uh, with people in healthcare facilities as they recovered from their injuries and illnesses and also helping people write about their life story. And uh, so, you know, on September 11th, I was in Joshua Tree National Park in uh, southeastern uh, California. Uh, I was the only person who was not an American citizen with 60 folks from the US or across the USA. We were off the grid, no televisions in sight. Uh, but that morning on September 11th, I was told uh, with the other folks about what had happened that uh, at that point the towers had been hit and the Pentagon had been hit. Uh, one of the people in the uh, room had uh, financial uh, advisors who were managing their stock portfolio who worked in the, one of the Twin Towers and they were afraid that, that person had died. Uh, it turned out later on that they survived. But it was a very immediate uh, story, just degrees of separation right away from people who were in the building. And uh, so it took me five days to get out of the USA back to Vancouver, Canada. There were no flights. Uh, I got across the border on a bus and, uh, and then, you know, life moved on. It was uh, war in Afghanistan, war in Iraq. The 9-11 commission was really off the radar as far as the news went up where I live. Uh, I did see Condoleezza Rice over dinner one, one night uh, on the TV with her, with their statements to the 9-11 Commission, but otherwise that was a, a inquiry that was not well covered here in Canada. And so I happened upon a book in 2007 by Kristen Breitweiser uh, called Wake Up Call, The Political Education of 9-11 Widow. 
her husband Ron had died in the South Tower. And this was a story about how she and others formed the Family Steering Committee for the 9-11 Independent Commission and forced a reluctant Bush administration to have an investigation. And I was looking at this book and decided to buy it, thinking, how can it be that six years after the attacks, I've heard nothing about these families. All I knew was that the families had uh, lost loved ones. I'd read some obituaries that were reprinted in the Vancouver Sun and uh, from the New York Times. And I didn't know anything about the families pushing for an investigation. So I read the book with interest. I found my way onto the Family Steering Committee's website, which is still there, where people can read their many hundreds of questions, uh, only 9% which were addressed by the 9-11 Commission. And I began to read Paul Thompson's book, The, the Terror Timeline. I read uh, New York Times reporter Philip Shannon's book, uh, Uncensored, on the backstory to the 9-11 Commission. And... Uh, Jeanette McKinley's uh, memoir, Fortunate, uh, A Diary of, of 9-11, and a few other books. And I just tucked them away and didn't think I'd ever end up writing a book. But I found around 2016 that whenever I mentioned this occasionally, nobody seemed to know that I talked with uh, in the States or in Canada about the Family Steering Committee. It wasn't a name that they were familiar with, even though uh, these folks had been, you know, Kristen Breitweiser and others had been on Chris Matthews' Hardball. They'd been interviewed by Gail Sheehy on PBS, and they'd had numerous uh, interviews in, in local papers uh, in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. But I thought somebody needs to write a book about their story in addition to all of, you know, their occasional uh, sh uh, showing up on September 11th, writing yet another uh, editorial uh, asking for a new investigation. And I thought someone needs to also document in a book, in a physical book, uh, these efforts because the families, uh, there were a series of different efforts after the 9-11 Commission. And so I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and write this book and, and do some interviews and also watch the testimony of the families uh, who spoke to the 9-11 Commission. Right, and the, even the commission itself uh, may not have even happened without the effort. You used the acronym FSC to shorten the Family Steering Committee for Independent 9-11 Commission. Hold on just Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So um, can you talk about how the 9-11 happened in 2001? What happened after that? And then what led to the actual commission itself? So in the fall of 2001, I mean, a lot of the families initially are grieving. You've got reporters following the grieving families to their uh, funerals and uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, tears and, uh, and, and grief. And then the, uh, the Congress decides to pass a bailout package for the airlines. And, while that was happening, somebody in Congress thought, this isn't going to look good for, to pass a, what, $15 billion bailout package for the airlines unless we also give the families who lost loved ones something as well. And so uh, that uh, was now moving forward throughout the fall of 2001. The families are taking note of all of that. And, uh, and the condition was you can have your, you know, whatever, $1.8 million on the condition that you do not ever 
sue the U.S. government for anything related to the attacks. Right. Uh, um, so you've got um, uh, some families, um, uh, Ellen Mariani uh, and um, Beverly Eckert, who ended up on the on the FSC, whose husband Sean Rooney died, were a number of the families who decided we're just going to go ahead and and ha see if we can have a our day in court with the U.S. government. But while that was happening, many other families said, well, even if we can't have a day in court with the U.S. government, let's have an inquiry. I mean, we've had this, you know, things like the Challenger space shuttle, uh, Monica Lewinsky having a, a, a liaison with former President Bill Clinton. Uh, right. They spent like $70 million on that or $50 million. Yeah. yeah, that was really important with the blue dress and everything. So. So the family saw, you know, nearly 3 million people, sorry, 3,000 people have died and we want to have an investigation. And, and so you've got Dick Cheney being uh, what Kristen Breitweiser refers to as the attack dog, always uh, glaring and always uh, saying we can't afford to have any money. Uh, we're busy with the war on terror. This is a distraction. Right. The and, terrorists win if we do this commission, right? Or something like that. Yes. The terrorists are going to win if we have this commission. So, so, so uh, eventually, uh, you know, Kristen, the families went to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, they had a rally on the 11th of June in 2002. About 300 family members came. Uh, Mindy Kleinberg, and uh, whose husband Alan died, and others were speaking at, at the microphone. Uh, there were people like John McCain. I, I know John, um, Senator Joe Lieberman from Connecticut was there for sure, and a number of other uh, members of Congress uh, from uh, New Jersey, especially, who were there hearing the family speak. And this uh, was a catalyst uh, together with uh, Kristen Breitweiser speaking on Chris Matthews' hardball in, in late August of 2002 to creating political pressure. And especially when Kristen Breitweiser spoke before the joint 9-11 inquiry of the intelligence committees of both Congress and the U.S. Senate in September, 8, uh, September 18, 2002. And she had a long list of, of questions about uh, you know, how could the FBI have the names of all of these terrorists so quickly knowing, you know, what um, grocery store, what uh, uh, what airport. Uh, right. They knew like something an FBI knew to visit a store in Bangor, Maine, only hours after the attacks. And you include that segment of her questions right there before the forward of your book. Yeah, it's, it's incredible to, you know, like on the one hand, the story, official story is like the Keystone cops. Nobody could connect the dots. And then immediately after after the attacks, uh, or even as they're happening, there are all kinds of people who are connecting the dots precisely with with military precision or with you know right. the, I mean, remarkable professional. Yeah, they had complete biographies already. They had they knew the flight schools, the neighborhoods where they lived. It was really incredible. So they didn't know that before, but after they knew. Yeah. So after after they knew, uh, and so the families. This is an interesting thing about writing this book, because if I've been writing a book about the last 20 years, you know, the, the, the emergence of and growth of the 9-11 truth movement, it would be a different book because, um, you know, folks in the 9-11 truth movement have gone to places around asking head on questions about government complicity. And the family story of how they get to that place is, is a different one. Imagine that you've just lost 
someone in your family in this spectacular political event that's happened, you know, in your own domestic soil. I can understand how many families will want to believe what their president, what their defense secretary and all of these other people in powerful positions are telling them because they want to believe that something like this that matters so much and has affected them so deeply that they're going to be told something which is ballpark the truth. And so that is sort of the beginning place for the families. And Kristen Breitweiser writes in her memoir, Wake Up Call, uh, you know, at, at the cusp of the families, um, you know, getting the uh, investigation going in the uh, winter of 2002, she talks about how, you know, nearly 3,000 people were murdered. And four of these, you know, herself, Patty Casaza, Mindy Kleinberg, and Lori Van Auken, four of their husbands were among those murdered. I mean, that is the perspective that the families have going into the inquiry. And then things start to happen. Uh, President Bush finally caves to the pressure on, on, in, on the Capitol, and he names Dr. Henry Kissinger to be uh, the head of the investigation. And Kissinger, with his connections to uh, the uh, September 11th, 1973 uh, coup right. in Chile yeah. and other things. He's wanted uh, as a war criminal in different countries around the world. Uh, and there's all kinds of mainstream uh, reporting going on with the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune and the LA Times and Seattle Post Intelligencer all calling into question the judgment of this being the person named to head up an inquiry who's got a long track record for secrecy. Right. And it was really fascinating. You had a little piece sequence, I think, in the second chapter where the FSC or these women go and meet Kissinger at his office. Can you talk about that? So they, they have they come because it's, you know, it's, it's late November, early December of, of 2002, cold in New York City. Uh, and I think it's Park Avenue uh, offices. And they go up there and Kissinger has turned up the heat, literally. Uh, the thermostat is at the at the at the height of what it can be, you know, 86, you know, whatever it is, 80, 28 Fahrenheit. And so these women who are coming in, you know, wearing winter garb uh, start to have to peel off their coats and sweaters because it's just so too darn hot, as Cole Porter might say. And so uh, Kissinger's you know, being very evasive. And so Lori Van Auken asks the question. She says, Dr. Qu Kissinger, you know, this is, it's important that this inquiry uh, run, uh, you know, above board. We just want to make sure that, that you have no conflict of interest, that you have no uh, clients uh, uh, by the name of bin Laden, given that this is the uh, prime suspect that the nice. government has said has orchestrated the attacks. And at that moment, uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger, uh, who's pouring coffee for, for the FSC members, uh, spills it all over the coffee table, uh, practically falls off his, his, uh, his seat, uh, loses his balance, and then blames it on a fake eye. And then the next day uh, resigns as chair of the 9-11 commission. So he was confronted and that was pretty much kind of probably was something that sealed his fate on that. But they, uh, so they talked about that. There was also kind of an exposure of the PNAC documents and things like there was also, uh, yeah. Can you talk about that? The PNAC documents, why they're important to the story and what led to, yeah. Can you talk about that? Sure. The uh, project for new American century, 
uh, is interestingly one of the questions that the families do ask the 9-11 Commission to investigate. And this was a, a document put together by this group, Project for a New American Century, which had, uh, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen of the, of the signers on the, of that document uh, uh, were uh, then members of the new Bush administration, President uh, Vice, you know, Vice President Cheney, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, John Bolton, Paul Wolfowitz, and others who were signing it. And uh, Beverly Eckert, who was uh, interviewed uh, by 911truth.org, said, you know, kind of the perspective of the families was uh, that it concerns them that uh, that in this time after the Cold War had ended, so to speak, with the uh, uh, the kind of collapse of the uh, former Soviet Union. Uh, now, Russia's not at that time in the 1990s uh, uh, such a, a formidable uh, adversary. And so there's uh, a pressure to reduce defense spending. And uh, so uh, there are folks on the Project for New American Century that think that it would be really great for a, a new ge geopolitical overreach for uh, the United States to have, a, quote, a new Pearl Harbor. And so... Uh, families would like uh, the people who are signers of the of the PNAC document to come before the 9-11 Commission and explain why they thought that a new Pearl Harbor would be a good idea. Right. So there's that document before 9-11. And one of the things you also reference uh, as a, a basis point for the research was the complete 9-11 timeline by Paul Thompson. Can you talk about his importance? Yeah. So you've got, you've got the families who are you know, up at, you know, up late at night, um, trying to read um, the physical reports, uh, mostly of, of the, the papers, um, uh, and some of them have computers, but they're trying to get what they can, uh, you know, by just reading things, going to public libraries to read, uh, you know, day old copies of, of papers in, in Connecticut and Pe Pennsylvania and New York City and so on. And then one of them comes across the uh, what was then called the complete 9-11 timeline by researcher Paul Thompson, uh, who in, I think, May or June of 2002 had begun to compile all the articles he could find that related uh, to the attacks on September 11th, going back, um, you know, way back to, uh, say, the CIA's first involvement with, uh, with creating uh, a force of uh, uh, um, in Afghanistan that would disrupt the Soviet Union, and Osama bin Laden and others are involved in that. And so he, he, he does this timeline, eventually, of over 5,000 news stories. And so the families were reading uh, you know, they created binders and, you know, cut and pasted articles into these binders, but there suddenly was Paul Thompson's timeline online for them with all these links so they could read very quickly. And those questions, the, the articles that he had online then helped them expand the questions because they wanted to read these stories that were all mainstream news stories. And then, you know, from this New York Times article, this Washington Post or BBC article, then to form questions that they could uh, put to the 9-11 Commission to ask this president, that vice president, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, uh, different agencies, CIA, Defense Department, FAA, so that the 9-11 Commission could, could be 
posing the urgent and relevant questions to vigorously pursue wherever the evidence led. Right. And so then, so the Bush administration is kind of hesitating, doesn't want to move forward, but they finally relent. And the 9-11 Commission starts, I think, in September of 2003. Can you talk about the formation of the commission and what uh, happened right from the beginning? Sure. So like, yeah, it's actually in November of 2002, the, uh, the commission begins. And, uh, and interestingly, in it, I mean, Bush uh, gets to name who, you know, they named Tom Keene, uh, Republican governor of New Jersey, and then Lee Hamilton, who's the Democrat uh, nominee to be the co-chair. And, and Lee Hamilton, I mean, he has a connection with the Iran-Contra um, scandal. I mean, he was involved in the Iran-Contra inquiry. And his, uh, his, uh, his public statements to the press were he never, he didn't like to ever go for the jugular. And uh, so when he hears Oliver North uh, speak to him in person, uh, and Oliver North apparently is lying about his involvement in the Iran-Contra affair in the 1980s. Uh, Lee Hamilton says that he just believed him. I mean, you know, and, and Lee Hamilton is also someone with a long history of, of close personal friendship going on, uh, on uh, you know, fishing trips or other things with both uh, Vice President Dick Cheney and Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld. So uh, the, the optics regarding uh, conflict of interest, I mean, would a close personal friend of the vice president and the secretary of defense be uh, impartial or is there going to be a slanted uh, bias on the part of Lee Hamilton to not uh, uh, go anywhere that might end up embarrassing his close friends? Right. And I mean, the kind of the commission itself, they were kind of uh, hobbled from the beginning. Would you agree with that? Well, they are, and they're, and they're, I mean, they're, they're hobbled from the beginning because they're given a $3 million budget, I mean, in contrast to the $70 million budget to investigate the Clintons with Monica Lewinsky and Whitewater. And so it's a tiny little budget. And uh, in addition to that, they don't have, like, they've, got, they've given a, an office space, uh, which I think is related uh, to uh, intelligence, either CIA or defense intelligence, but because of the location of the office for the 9-11 Commission, all of the people who were on staff, the 80 uh, staff who were doing the work uh, for the commission, plus the commissioners themselves, have to get security clearance. And so you've got people who are taking up to four months to be able to have even their first visit to the 9-11 Commission office because of its location. You also have, it takes a long time for the commission to even get their own phone or coffee maker or a fax machine or photocopier. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible to think that something as important as that would be hobbled by, uh, you know, things like. <laughs> right. And they didn't allow for public hearings. You would think that this would necessitate public hearings for the entire public of the United States to see the research, but to have that. And then they limited subpoenas, I think. Right. Or they didn't yeah. want to give subpoenas. Yeah, they they so they had like I mean Lee Hamilton was was dead against having any public hearings. Uh, the 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 9/11 Commission eventually decided that they would have 12 public hearings, which ran over 18 days. Um, and uh, you know they had Mary Fetchett, whose son Brad died in the South Tower. They had um, 
Monica Gabrielle, whose husband Richard died in the in the South Tower, both speaking early on. Mindy Kleinberg, uh, Sally Regenhard, whose son, firefighter, probationary firefighter, Christian uh, was uh, also died. Uh, these you know these people are speaking. But in addition to this, you have other people, uh, Dr. Lori Milroy and Abraham so far, um, who are really there uh, before the 9-11 Commission to pitch as a sales pitch for the Iraq War. And so some of the choices that, that uh, the 9-11 Commission is making, which are really uh, made by uh, the executive director, Philip Zellico, to, uh, to, to kind of shift and shape the direction of who's asked questions and who's not asked questions. Right. And Zelico himself was a questionable character. Can you talk about him? Uh, Zelico had a former, uh, you know, close relationship with uh, Condoleezza Rice, had co-authored a book about uh, Russia, uh, had also been the person principally involved in, in uh, writing the policy paper about uh, preemptive war and, uh, and, and uh, the whole strategy to go to war in Iraq. Uh, so uh, it would seem that having somebody who's so uh, connected with the plan to go to Iraq uh, and and to you know go to war in Iraq, being uh, involved in the 9/11 Commission, uh, further raised questions of family members and also members of the 9/11 Commission itself. Max Cleland, who was uh, from Georgia, uh, was uh, really upset that uh, you know he wanted to, to press the 9/11 commissioners to investigate if there if the uh, if the, if the events of 9/11 were somehow uh, connected to uh, to the war in Iraq was there a pretext uh, and and the commissioners didn't want to go there and Max Cleland resigned and when he resigned he was replaced by Bob Kerry uh, who I would say for a long time given some of Kerry's later statements, uh, interesting because he was interested in having a, a permanent 9/11 commission. He said in 2008, but at the time, uh, Bob Kerry, uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, he when he's replacing Max Cleland in 2003, he's on the committee uh, for the uh, uh, you know the liberation of Iraq. So he's he's staunchly involved in a in a group that's full of war hawks that are all promoting uh, the goodness of war in Iraq. Right, it's incredible. And I think you wrote in your book like Rove was contacting with Zelico when he was on the head. So there's like uh, cross pollination or discussions with the administration. So it's not independent. And I thought it was fascinating when you wrote about this outline that he had about the conclusion of the report. Can you talk about the outline and? And what happened in the report? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the report. Uh, you know, most investigations begin at the beginning, and sure, uh, you you have people who may have some hunches about what happened at the beginning, but they decide to receive all of the tips on uh, uh, following different leads, and they follow those leads and go wherever they take them, and then they write up their report. Or take their case to uh, uh, to uh, to before a judge, the police do, and say, "Here's our case, and now we want to have a trial." Or here's where the inquiry has taken our report. Now we're going to write it up. However, with the 9/11 Commission, Philip Zelico and the senior counsel Ernst May write up an outline of all the chapter headings and the subheadings, which show basically the direction of 
of where the report will go and where it in fact did go. And so, you know, Bob McIlvain, whose son Bobby Jr. died uh, entering the North Tower from a blast, uh, says it's just incredible uh, that uh, and and scandalous that a report about trying to have Americans know what happened would be written uh, with such prejudice at the beginning uh, and and not looking under all kinds of rocks that that should have been looked under. It's just incredible. So it was comp. It seemed compromised from the beginning, and they came out with the final report. the The FSC says it was. September 11th happened because of failure of imagination. Can you explain what your view of the final report is after it came out? Okay, so the final report, um, you know, reflects uh, all of the uh, of the of the boxes that get ticked in the creation of the outline in uh, February, March of 2003. So, in 2004 in July, when the when the report comes out, you see all these. Uh, almost identical or slightly revised uh, title chapters and subheadings of the whole report. So uh, the families are are looking at it and uh, and they're you know they're there there are some people who embrace it right away uh, and others uh, I'd say about half the folks on the on the on the on the FSC are uh, quite convinced by the government story and about half of the folks are are skeptical but they have to read the, read the report and i would think i say also it's interesting that in uh in in may uh, there's and june of 2003 uh, four, the the fsc is still uh they have lots of criticism of of the way that the 911 commission keeps going off track not subpoenaing, not doing the kind of asking the hardball questions that they should be, uh, saying nice things like "that's a really great suit you're wearing," you know, wasting their five minutes. But but they're still saying, as a, as a body, the FSC is saying, you know, that they accept the story of the 19 hijackers and Bin Laden. But it takes after the 9/11 Commission report comes out, and after people start to read it through the fall and winter of 2004. Uh, then there are people saying, did the commission get it right? And in, in July of 2005, Lori Van Auken and Monica Gabrielle and um, one other person I forget are, are there uh, with Cynthia McKinney having a, a day where the con Congress is investigating uh, a year after the report with lots of questions. And Lori Van Auken, you know, says that... Um, you know, we always said if there are conspiracy theories out there, it is the government's fault right. because they did not ever really explain or show or want us to know what happened. And I mean, that's a perfect segue into the next section of the book, part three, that references the title of your book, Unanswered Questions, because you have all of these sections that the FSC is asking. I think it's like 10 or 11 about what they should have asked, right? Yes, they, they, like, they, they should be asking you know, why did the planes evade radar? Uh, they should be asking, you know, how could the, how could these planes uh, be flying around in U.S. domestic airspace when since 1958, it's been a pr protocols for any, for all flights to have, have to get approval from the air traffic control set tower uh, to have a flight path, to be able to fly at a certain altitude. And if they change that altitude or flight path at all, 
while they're in the air, they have to get permission from the nearest air traffic control tower to do so because of weather events or whatever. And so when you have a flight going two miles off course, uh, there have been you know, well over 10,000 or, or more flights that have been intercepted routinely with military precision uh, with 100% accuracy uh, and you know, ach achievement on the part of the US military because the US Air Force's uh, motto is guarding the nation's skies. Right. Right. And so suddenly you've got four planes flying around for nearly two hours, hijacked planes with no military response. And you've got families who are affected by this, uh, who are actually part of the military. And it doesn't make sense to them. And there's just so many unanswered questions. Why was it cleaned up so fast? Why, why didn't George Bush return to the White House? There's just all kinds of strange elements. I mean, it's very important for people to get this book and look at how many questions there still are after 20 years. It's really remarkable. Well, thank you. I mean, and, and I had to make choices about, well, which questions am I going to try and tackle in this book? Because it's just like a peek at it because there are, you know, hundreds of questions. And so, uh, but it's interesting how the families, you know, begin to shift after the 9-11 re report comes out because in the summer of uh, August of 2005, the New York Times then releases uh, the 503 testimonies of the, of the fire, firefighters of New York, Department of New York, uh, who, who gave their oral histories to their senior, off, senior uh, staff in the fall and winter of 2001-2002. And you have these 503 testimonies, and if you care to read through the 12,000 pages as I have, I took about one a day over a year and a half, because I didn't know these people, but over 100 of, of these first responders describe in their efforts to rescue people that they encountered what they describe as, quote, explosions, bombs, secondary devices going off. And so the families, it just raises more questions for the families. And so uh, then begins more uh, requests for a new transparent investigation to try and account for this kind of data. Right. So there's stuff that was left out of the 9-11 the Commission report. And there's still tons of questions. I mean, where where are we now? What uh, what's the situation with the FSC? And are there any kind of uh, things that are coming up on the horizon? Yeah. Well, the FSC, as a as a formal body, uh, dissolved in January of 2005. But they say so long in their final press release, saying we're going to still be watching and monitoring this. So over the over the years, you have um, like four of the members of the F former FSC members uh, in 2010, I think it is, uh, uh, jointly uh, released a press release with the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, asking for information about the explosions, reported explosions in the World Trade Center and uh, buildings one and two and World Trade Center seven. And they want, they just, they're asking these as open-ended questions. They're not saying, we know who did this. They're just saying this, this is an elephant in the room and it needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And so you've got, uh, you know, people, uh, Bobby, Ma Bob McElvain uh, came together with, with others, uh, other family members in 2017 for a, a Bobby McElvain World Trade Center Investigation Act that went before Congress and uh, members of Congress didn't want to touch it. 
but there's other family members who uh, last year uh, uh, asked for the National Institutes for uh, Standards and, and Technology to, uh, or transportation to uh, correct the record of how World Trade Center Building 7 fell. And so there are these continued efforts by families uh, Jeff Campbell, whose brother, I'm sorry, Matt Campbell, whose brother Jeff died in, in, the, in the Twin Towers. Uh, it has an inquest going uh, to reopen the, the inquest into his brother's death, and that's happening in the UK. Gotcha. And uh, we're almost at 40 minutes. Where's the best, I mean, it comes out September 11th. Where's the best place for people to find the book or get the book? Uh, I've just learned yesterday the book, uh, which I have actually not received yet my first my physical copy. I'll get it next week sometime. Uh, people can begin to order now uh, copies of unanswered questions through their local independent bookstores. Uh, uh, Ingram Spark is the distributor in the USA. Uh, I've seen now that the book is now available uh, hardcover paperback. Uh, with ebook coming soon on Amazon, and it's also available in some versions on Barnes and Noble. Uh, so, the, I mean, the book's in the middle of, of being uploaded with the files this week. So, next week, people should be able to certainly order the book. Excellent. And it, there's so much more. You know, we covered the intro, but there's so many questions and so much information in here. I highly recommend people check out this book. Go and get it. Where's the best place if people want to reach out to you or ask you questions? Social media, email, or what's the best option? Sure, they can look up, look me up on Twitter, which is at Ray McGinnis, uh, and then numeral seven, which is kind of like World Trade Center seven. And then uh, I'm also at www.unanswered.questions.ca, CA for Canada, but just like California. Gotcha. And the title of the book again is Unanswered Questions: What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9/11 Commission Ignored. Publishing on September 11th, 2021, and the author is Ray McGinnis. Ray, thank you so much. Thanks so much, William. Great to talk to you. Likewise. Take care. Okay. All right. You still there?